0: These are the tribulations of Paulette. As we enter the Cordero Funeral Parlor, Ted and I part the motley crowd like Pitt and Jolie, There's a noticeable murmur as we make our way to the eternally resting Steve. Ted's sweaty paw won't let go of me, so we kneel in unison. I peer into the casket to get a closer look at our old friend. Yikes! Char marks peek out from the pancake makeup around the edges of Steve's shirt collar, consistent with his accidental death by clock radio electrocution. I wonder why they didn't just finish the job and cremate the poor guy. On the plus side... Steve's corpse is cleanly shaved and in coat and tie. Too bad the mortician can't have a similar go with the rest of the congregants. Ted is inching back up in my esteem against this sideshow backdrop of former classmates, if only because he's better dressed. I strain to find a familiar face through what could pass for a NASCAR coffee clatch. We are greeted first by our former class president, whose withering chops make me wonder why I was so worried about my mustache. This woman has organized every horrific rubber chicken reunion since we graduated, which was our impetus to take over the festivities in the first place. When did you two finally get married, she wants to know, gesturing to Ted's and my hands, still nervously clasped. Our heads recoil in shock. Mine from this woman's bad breath. Ted's from the marriage comment. Oh, <laughs> I'm not married to Paulette, Ted declares laughing, wiping his now-free hand on his trouser leg. I'm married to my college girlfriend. My face, still fresh from that subterranean kiss that nearly got us arrested, has to look on expressionless while Ted launches into a soliloquy about his perfect family. The Estima meter now chugs in reverse as each revelation about his charmed life emerges. Why can't he have the good taste to play it down on my behalf? In spite of our attraction, Ted has a history of being kind of mean to me. Ingrid may have been his college girlfriend, but unbeknownst to her, so was I. In the back seat of Ted's car after a homecoming game sophomore year in college, we had our own homecoming. During exams, I learned about the unintended consequences and called Ted at his college to tell him about our predicament. Without missing a beat, Ted said, are you sure it's mine? My college roommate helped me find my way to several hundred dollars and planned parenthood. Over Christmas break, I went all by myself to Boston for the procedure. Although it didn't seem like a big deal, I could tell from all the counseling that there might be emotional implications further down the road. I called Ted when I returned home, but his little brother told me he was at a hockey game. Winter break came and went. I never heard from him. Weeks after I was back at college, an envelope of cash arrived from Ted with no note. In a par for the course, he had anteed up for his half. I stand at Ted's side, thinking about that incident, which was so bad, and that kiss today, which was so good, when my cell phone rings from the depths of my handbag. I chip three nails in an attempt to locate it and step to the foyer of the funeral parlor, grateful to be moving away from Ted and his rapt, ragtag audience. It's Biscuit, and she's all excited. Ducks, we're all set for backstage tonight at the Stones! I had completely forgotten about the concert. We're picking you up at 5.30. We're something terrific. Mick is so lonely since Lorraine packed it in. We'll make him laugh. The impetus to exit. Ah, uh, nice to see you all, but we've got to get Ted here back to New York, I announced, steering Ted away from his fans like a celebrity handler. See you at the 30th reunion. Ted, who was basking in his moment of glory among our less fortunate classmates, now has to slink once again into the back seat of Officer Danilo's cruiser and return to the scene of our crime where my car awaits. We are cleared to drive. This time, Ted gets into the passenger seat. He's a little peeved to hear that I can't linger with him in Providence. Stones really suck these days, Paulette, he warns. But we're going backstage, I tell him. This will not be your average concert. As I expected, When we reach the train station, he plants another long kiss on me. But this time, I feel just a little smarter and pull away first. Two hours later, tarted up to the hilt, I step into a white stretch limo while Dave and the kids watch from the back steps. Bye again, Mommy, they chime. Seems Biscuit's Cambridge contingent has risen to the occasion for this event. I usually feel like Barbara Cartland next to them, but tonight I smell perfume and see lip gloss on biscuit in the dim light. When we get to Dolly's, I run inside to get her. Bunyan is in the garage in flannel shirt and overalls, surrounded by sawhorses and expensive-looking woodworking equipment. Going to the stones, huh? Wish I was going with you, ladies. Jumpin' Jack Flash is a gas, gas, gas. Have fun, girls. Remember. Don't let Mick put his sticky fingers up your dresses. Dolly and I slip into the dark, cool confines of the car, where we sip champagne to Beast of Burden. Everyone talks about what a tough day they had, but I have no platform of comparison. Well, what did you do today, Paulette, they want to know? Hmm, let's see. I went out to a boozy lunch. I went parking with my high school boyfriend. I almost got arrested I took a police cruiser to awake, saw all my old classmates from high school, and now I'm here. Oh, yeah, and I got a mustache wax. There is silence in the car. Someone says, wow. Well, why not, I say, hearkening back to my classmate Steve, deep in the big sleep in his mahogany box. As my mom always says, you're dead for an awfully long time. (laughs) Music for this podcast is written and performed by Mr. Eric Fontana. Next time, Jumpin' Jack Flash is an ass, ass, ass. Till then, ta ta.